Awesome. All right. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles this morning? We're going to look at the book of Jonah. And look at the book of Jonah, which is not typically a passage of Scripture that, uh, that I would, would go to. But um, I submit. I submit to the Lord. And uh, Jonah, we're going to look at chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, we thank you that all of your word speaks because you're a God who speaks. And you're a God who speaks in many ways, and one of the primary vehicles in which you speak to us today is through the inspired word of God. Father, we thank you that today there is an inspired word. There is a word that has been breathed on by the Holy Spirit for this people at this time. And we submit to the Holy Spirit. We ask today that you would shape us and form us. We ask that you would guide us and lead us. And we ask today that you would speak to us by your spirit in your word. And we pray these things today in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look together at Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. This is God speaking to Jonah. And you'll notice here, for those of you guys who are new to the book of Jonah, this is the second time, we're going to break this down here in a minute, this is the second time that God ends up speaking to Jonah about this particular assignment. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. I love this. They believed God. They declared a fast, which is a form of humility. And from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth, which was a form, a physical form of repentance and humility. And it says right here that he sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. This is the word of the Lord. This is such a fascinating book, guys. And if you've not read the book of Jonah, it's just four small chapters. Uh, I had a hard time finding it, to be really honest with you guys. (laughs) Don't be sitting here acting so holy. You don't know where Jonah is either, okay? (laughs) 
Those minor prophets, man, they get lost. They just get lost. They really do. Uh, but I reacquainted myself with Jonah this week, those four chapters, and, and, and it's amazing. It's actually a very controversial book. We're going to look at a little bit of the historical background. Uh, if you're not familiar, in Jonah chapter 1, the book starts off, and God actually shows up to Jonah, and he says, I have a word for you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians, and here's what I did not know prior to this, but the Assyrians were the murderers. And they were the most violent people on the planet at that time. And uh, it's interesting because the commentary, the particular commentary that I was walking through, actually gave a little disclaimer and says things are going to get really graphic from here. And it got very, very graphic. If you take Braveheart and Gladiator, multiply that by 10, you'll get Assyria and you'll get what I read in the commentary. These guys were horrific. They were awful. And the things that they did in order to, they would go in and they would conquer smaller towns and, and they would, you know, pillage and plunder and they would do that in the most inhumane ways. And they would, they would actually uh, send messages to all the surrounding countries around them. You don't want to mess with us. We're the baddest in the land. Uh, they, they, would, they would be like the, uh, the extreme terrorists of our time. They were the enemies, not only to Israel, they were the enemies to everyone. And here, we see this interesting window into the heart and in the character and the nature of God. Because in all of their wickedness, God goes to Jonah and he says, I want you to go and I want you to give them a message that judgment is coming. Give them a message that if they don't turn from their ways, that the living God is going to exact judgment on their lives. Now, many of us know this story, especially if any VeggieTale followers here in the room, Jonah was a prophet, and he never really got it. <laughs> you can strike that from the podcast, please. Jonah, Jonah jumps on the ship, and he says, not me. I'm not doing this. Now, many of us, if we're really honest, I'll just, put my, I'll just, I'll just disclose me. I know growing up, and even into my latter theological years, I was like, man, Jonah was this moral, rebellious, cowardly. And then as I got into this, I began to discover that probably wasn't the case. In fact, many of us forget that Jesus actually references Jonah to draw a parallel to who he is. He's talking to the people of Israel. Jesus is talking to the people of his time. And he's saying, you guys are all looking for a sign, but the only sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah who hung out in the belly of a whale for three days. And in the same way that Jonah came out of the belly of the whale in three days, the Son of Man is going to resurrect from the dead. And, and you're like, why would Jesus, of all of the characters, man, use Joseph. Joseph was awesome. Joseph, he was flawless. Use Daniel. Use the 21-day faster guy who, you know, use Esther. Use anybody. Why Jonah? And so it kind of made me think, well, maybe we got Jonah pegged wrongly. And here's, here's something we learn about Jonah. What we find as we study the Old Testament is we actually find this pattern of call and response. That when God calls a prophet, male or female, and he assigns them with a very difficult task, with the exception of probably a Joseph or Daniel, because those guys are just the goody two-shoes in the Old Testament. All right? What you typically find is you find what many commentators call prophetic resistance. What is prophetic resistance? Prophetic resistance is saying, God, this, this is too difficult for me to carry. 
And in their humanity, they begin engaging on a personal level with God about the reality of the difficulty of the assignment. Anybody been there before? Okay. Like, God, uh, this, this, I don't know, I'm sure if I want to do this. Now, now, I think that some of us don't do that because of the view and the vision of, of, of God that we have, that, that we assume that we can't have those kinds of conversations. But what we do not find in Jonah is that God never rebukes Jonah. And what we also do not find, contrary to popular opinion, is that God did not send the well to punish Jonah. Jonah was actually committing suicide. What happens in the story? Jonah jumps on the ship, and then this massive, volatile storm comes, and all the people that are on the ship that do not know the living God, they begin inquiring, and they say, because, you know, the people of that time, they were very religious, they were very spiritual, they were very superstitious. All of the other, all of the other cultures and all the other peoples believed in multiple gods. Just think of the Greeks and the Greek gods. That's, that's, the, that's kind of the milieu. That's the, the cultural ethic of the time. And so these guys are saying, the gods must be angry with us. And so they start doing everything they know to do practically, throwing stuff off the ship. The storm is not subsiding. They know something of spiritual nature is taking place here. This is not just a normal sea storm. And then so Jonah sheepishly comes forward and essentially goes, guys, this is my fault. This is me. It's mine. I should have told you that before he threw the food and the tackle off. <laughs> and it's amazing because all the people who do not know God, they, out of their own mercy and compassion, actually try to save Jonah's life. They're like, hey, listen, we're going to get you back to land. And he's like, guys, just throw me off. They're like, no, we're going to spare you. The, the storm intensifies. So much so to the point where they're like, what do we do? He says, guys, 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 I'm going to walk the plank. Just kick me off. And so they don't want to do this, but they end up tossing Jonah. And it was a suicide mission. It was literally a suicide mission. When you look at Jonah chapter 2, you'll find language where Jonah is actually referencing different psalms and prayers of David. And he talks about actually sinking down to the bottom of the ocean floor. It was a suicide mission. And here's what I love. Can we find the last two verses of Jonah chapter 2? This is what I love in Jonah chapter 2. Let's throw those on the screen. But I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Next verse. And the Lord commanded the fish. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now what's going on here? God is the God of everything. He's the Lord of all. And when they tossed Jonah out of that ship, the scriptures say that God provided a fish. He provided a fish. This is crazy. This is crazy. What's, what's equally as crazy to me is the thought of what this fish must have been like. My son's gotten into the show called Chasing Monsters. It's a pretty fun show, and it's basically this guy who goes all over the world trying to, like, capture the biggest fish that are out there. So in my, my mind, it automatically goes to, like, these monster fish, you know? And, I mean, imagine, like, just the digestive system of being inside of a fish. You want to talk about, you know, needing some Dramamine? You want to talk about a little motion sickness swirling around in the bottom of the ocean in a fish? Um, crazy stuff here. But somehow we have to dial in that this was not punishment. We have to dial in that this was not God striking Jonah down because Jonah was some rebellious guy. 
Jonah was afraid, and here's why he was afraid. He was afraid because he was in a catch-22 situation. He knew that if he goes to these terrorists, that's what they were, they were terrorists, they were mercenaries, that if he went to these terrorists and they did not heed the word of God, what's happening to Jonah? Game over. But he also knew that if I do go and I deliver the word of the Lord and they repent, then my own people who hate these people are not going to hate me. That's the position that he was in. He was literally in a rock and a hard place. And so he flees. He actually says at the end of the book in chapter four, multiple times he says, I would rather have died than to have this assignment. In fact, even after he completes the assignment, he says, God, I'm so ticked off with you and I'd rather die than be in the situation I am right now. And God in his mercy utilizes this just incredible and ridiculous way of saving Jonah's life. And here's what I want to say to you today. Don't curse your fish. It might be your deliverance. Don't curse your fish. Don't curse your difficulty. Don't curse the situation that you're in right now that seems hopeless and it seems impossible. The thing that I find amazing is that while Jonah is still in the fish in chapter two, the only thing that comes out of his mouth when he recognizes the goodness of God, somehow in the midst of this darkness, and it was utter, utter darkness. I mean, the only darker you can get at the bottom of the ocean floor is being inside of something at the bottom of the ocean floor. It was dark. And here, you'll find in chapter two, all he does is thank and praise God. God, for God's deliverance, even though deliverance had not come forth yet. Some of us, when things look like they are bleak and impossible, you know what you need to do? You need to praise God in the middle of your darkest hour. You need to praise God for his deliverance until you see his deliverance. You need to declare his deliverance until you see his deliverance manifest in your life. And again, don't curse the very thing that God might be using to turn some things around in your lives. God is the God of everything. God's the God, God, God is such a God that he can take the most difficult situations, the most crazy and confusing, the most despairing situations. He, he can use sickness. He can use death. He can use job loss. He can use disappointment. He can use the slander. He can use betrayal. He can use all of those things and in the middle of those, pluck you out of those things and put you into something that seems like it is impossible and he'll use that very impossible mechanism to bring forth deliverance in your lives. That's amazing. That's what we discover about God. But then we read in chapter three that Jonah then decides that he's gonna be obedient. Fish spits him out onto land. Jonah comes onto dry land. The Lord says, I'm gonna try this one more time. Hey, about that word thing that I want you to deliver, let's try this again. I'm gonna give you another chance. And so Jonah, I think this is a good decision, he decides to obey and he goes to Nineveh, and here's what we find out about Nineveh. Nineveh is a very powerful city. It's, it's also, to God, a very important city. Now, this is a city full of murderers and terrorists and bloodthirsty warmongers, and God says it's an important city. And what we begin to find, what we begin to find is we begin to find God's picture of our enemies, 
this is one of the themes that emerges in Jonah. In fact, up until this time, many commentators say you really can't, you can't blame Jonah because up until this time, Jonah is acting faithful with what he understands about God. What do we understand about God? God blesses the righteous, he punishes the wicked. That was the current revelation about who God was, and it was the previous revelation. If you honor me, I'll bless you. If you, if you don't honor me, if you disobey, I'm going to judge you. And then God in Jonah somehow breaks in and says, I've got a new revelation of myself to give to you. And how do we respond when God enters in and says that the way that you viewed this people group, the way that you viewed that political party, the way that you viewed this issue, the way that you viewed this church, the way that you viewed whatever it is, I want to break in. I want to show you something new. How do we respond to that? Because that's what's happening in Jonah. Jonah is being confronted with a new revelation that God wants to bring to him. And immediately, he doesn't handle it the right way. But in God's goodness and in God's mercy, God says, Jonah, I do not hate my enemies. I love them. And I want to demonstrate mercy and kindness to my enemies, to your enemies. Now, here's something that I find that's amazing. Because Jonah is faithful to the Lord. And Nineveh, it says, was a day that literally took three days to go through. And on the first day, look at your Bibles. It says Jonah chapter 3. And it says right here on verse 1, on the first day, uh, verse 4, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. And perhaps one of the weakest, most pathetic, prophetic proclamations I've ever seen. I mean, look at it. Guys, seriously. 40 more days. 40 more days, and if it's going to be overthrown, I'm only here because I have to be. Don't want to be in fish food anymore. 40 more days. You guys stink, you rascals. 40 more days. 40 more days. And on the first day, how do the people of Nineveh respond? Let's look at the next verse. I mean, I don't know about you, but let's get real with, let's get real with the human condition. If I knew I had 40 days to change... I'd be changing on the 39th day at 11 o'clock in like 59 minutes. I'd be like, I got four, you gave me 40 days. Don't shake your head at me, Melissa. <laughs> 39 days, 11 o'clock, I promise you. You gave me a time, stop, you gave me a timeline. On the first day, this is what the scripture says, the Ninevites believed God, number one. The Ninevites believed God, an unbelieving people, a sinful, wicked people, hear the word of the Lord, and the moment they hear it, they respond to it. Guys, guys, listen, how many of you, how many of us, myself, how many of you said, oh, I'm not going to say anything, I just know that they're never going to listen to me. This is Jonah's posture. This is a hopeless situation. Why share the gospel? Why share a prophetic word? Why share an encouraging word? Why share a differing perspective? Why share a differing opinion? The Ninevites give us hope that no matter how wicked and how corrupt a people or a person may be, that the word of God has power to break in and to bring revelation, insight, to bring conviction, to bring change. They believed God. They believed God. Be careful that you do not do someone's unbelieving of God for them. Be careful that you do not punt for somebody else when they may want to go another down. Be careful that you do not make somebody's decisions for them and steal from them their opportunity to hear from God and respond to God. 
Number two, let's keep that verse up there if we could, guys. Here's the second thing the Ninevites do. They believed God and a fast was proclaimed. Now remember, here's what a fast does. A fast says we are literally intentionally, we are intentionally going to rob ourselves of our strength. We are gonna empty ourselves of our physical resources. We are gonna choose weakness, which is choosing dependence. And we are gonna make ourselves this war-mongering, blood-thirsty terrorists that were the strongest in the land. We're gonna humble ourselves. They made themselves extremely vulnerable to outside forces when they did that. But here's what they chose. We would rather make ourselves vulnerable to outside forces than to fall into the hands of a God who is more powerful and has the ability to judge us. Lord, they didn't realize that what they were doing, but they were trusting God. They were trusting God. And here's what I want to tell you this morning, whether it's for you, your family, your family member, your, your, your neighbor, whatever impossible situation, I want to speak that the power of God, the power of God can enter in to impossible situations. When we choose to divest ourselves of our power and our strength and say, God, this is bigger than me, and I must trust you, and I must call on you. I want you to know there was no more impossible situation in that day and time than Nineveh. But it gets better. It says that a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, covered themselves with sackcloth, which was a visible form of repentance. Let's let's just drill this home. Look at verse 6. This is probably one one of my favorite verses in this. When Jonah's warning reached the king... Now think about just any affiliation that you have with the highest political leaders of our land and just just amplify that. Because we're talking about kings who had absolute authority with zero accountability. That's what's going on right here. There was nobody around that king to enforce this decree. This was total intervention by the revelation and the power of God. And when the news of this reached the king, He rose from his throne, which represents his authority and his power. He took off his royal robes, which represents his privilege. And he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits down in the dust. And then when I read that, because I've read this now multiple times, that phrase, he sat down in the dust, man, it just, Isaac, it just grabbed me. And here's what hit me, man. Sometimes I think we speed up the process of repentance, Sometimes when God's getting in there and he's trying to tinker and he's trying to show us something and he's trying, he's trying, to, he's trying to lovingly put his finger on something that needs, that needs to change, I think, I think we like to speed that process up. We're not really good patients, I don't think. You know what I mean when I say we're not really good patients? Anybody ever have to have surgery and they're saying, listen, this, this recovery is going to be about six months. You're like, ah, I'll be done in one. Huh? We're not good patients. There are some things that can only happen with time by slowing down and allowing God to do a deep work. And many of us are probably prolonging the work by trying to speed up the work. The king sat down in the dust. He just sits there. And nobody knows how long, but here's here's what I want us to get. He sits in his humility. He sits in his 
brokenness. He sits in his conviction. He sits in it. He sits in it. He sit, He lets it go deep inside of him till the transforming power of this message changes something in his life. And here's what I love, because the king says this. He issues a decree, and he says, we're not going to eat anything because we don't know God may change his mind. So he doesn't know the outcome. He's not trying to manipulate God. He's just responding to the conviction of the Lord in that moment. We find later in the New Testament that Paul actually talks about two types of sorrow. He talks about what's called worldly sorrow, and he talks about godly sorrow. And the worldly sorrow is that I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because, and all of you parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? You're sorry because you got grounded. You're sorry because you got a spank, and You're sorry because you can't go to your friend's house. You're not really sorry. You're sorry about the consequence. But that's not what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow is, God, I want you to get down. There's something that is broken inside of me. There's something that's sick inside of me. There's a way that I have chosen that needs to be reformed. And I need to sit in this dust long enough. I need to sit in this pain long enough until you can then rearrange the way that I think about what it is that I'm doing. Sit in the dust. Sit in the dust. Now listen, I'm not talking about nurturing shame. I'm not talking about harboring guilt. I'm not talking about throwing a pity party. I'm not talking about those things. What I am talking about is sitting long enough that the love of God encounters you. Sitting long enough, and it, guys, we're not even talking about massive gross sin here. We're not even talking about massive gross sin. It could just be something in our life that's not lined up with the way that God thinks and the way that God operates. From the way we communicate from the way that we receive correction, from the way that we view our neighbors and our friends, from the way that we view God, from the way that we view finances, from that difficult job that we're in that we hate and we just want to get out of and we don't know why God won't let us get out of it. Sit in it. Sit in it. Choose to sit in it and say, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? Because here's what I know. What God is trying to do in you is more important than God just delivering you out of something that's difficult. Sit in it, sit in it, sit in it. Stay in it. Let him speak to you. Let him get inside of you. You're not gonna be in it forever. You're not gonna be in it forever. Now you may, you may be in it forever <laughs> if you don't stop and allow God to do something deep in your heart. Look at the last verse of this chapter. We're almost done here, guys. Last verse of this chapter is verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them, and he did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. God had compassion on them. God had compassion on them. We need to know that whatever view of God that we might have, that the predominant view of God, the predominant, the the preeminent approach that God has with people on the earth is that of compassion and mercy and love and kindness. We need to just let that just sink in. 
Now, here's the last thing that I want to say before I close, because I think that this is amazing. Look at, verse, look at chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased. Careful before you judge Jonah. Because <laughs> remember, there's a part of us that's the king of Nineveh, and there's a part of us that's Jonah. Because here's what I find that's amazing. Jonah is a man who hears God's voice. Jonah is a prophet operating in prophetic ministry and gifting. Jonah is a man who experiences the miraculous in his life. Jonah is a man who experienced the providential deliverance of God moving on his behalf. Jonah is a man who has experienced the goodness and the kindness of God in his life. We find in chapter 2, if you read chapter 2, which is Jonah's prayer, it is just saturated with the Psalms. Jonah is a man of the word. Jonah is, Jonah is a man of God. And yet, Jonah does not carry God's heart. For his enemy. I want to sit in this for a minute. Because you can move in signs and wonders and miracles and not carry the heart of God for people. You can hear the voice of God directly. You can be obedient, even though reluctantly. You can be a prophet to the nations. It's funny to me in our stream, we, you know, we so elevate being at the top of the mountain and the king of the hill, and we want to be that person that speaks that final blow to kings and prime ministers. That was Jonah. And Jonah did not carry the heart of God for people. He was everything that we prop up. He was everything that we say as a stream of people that this is the goal. People who hear God. People who move in signs and wonders. People who experience these epic miraculous moments. People who deliver these fire blazing messages that causes nations to change. And he didn't carry the heart of God for people. He was angry. He was angry. Displeased and angry with God. Friends, listen. At the end of the day, I think the message of Jonah is, Jonah, I love your enemies. Come on up here, Jonathan. Jonah, I know they don't deserve it. It's not the point. Neither did you. You ran. I saved you. You ran. I chased you. I love your enemies, Jonah. Jonah, I love the Republicans. Jonah, I love the Democrats. Jonah, I love the Caucasian. Jonah, I love the African American. Jonah, I love the Latino. Jonah, I love the European. I love the Asian. Jonah, I love the Muslims. Jonah, I love ISIS. Jonah, I love your boss who you can't stand. Jonah, I love your father who walked out on you. Jonah, I love your enemies.
don't want to settle for great stories without carrying the heart of God. Don't want to settle for these power encounters and not share the heart of the Father. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. Because at the end of the day, if we're really honest, some of all those things become more about us. Let everything that we do be motivated by carrying the heart of the Father for those who don't deserve it. Because remember, there was a moment when we didn't deserve it either. Guys, let's stand to our feet this morning. Thanks, Jonah. Appreciate your life. take a minute here to allow the Holy Spirit to speak. I want to invite ministers of our table to come forward.